This is our 28th week uh, in our Matthew series. Uh, for uh, those of you who listened back here a few months ago, Teresa was one of them too, by the way. Uh, for those of you who listened back here a few months ago, we said that uh, the next place we would go uh, would be in Joshua. And so we uh, made available some study guides that would help you prepare as we, uh, as we prepare to move toward working through Joshua. Uh, we've had a change in plans, and uh, we still encourage you to pick up the, the study guide for Joshua. We've had a change in plans. Uh, so just to let you know how we're going to track along over the course of the next few months, um, we are going to continue in Matthew uh, through the end of September. Uh, we will pause for three weeks, uh, and then we will uh, have our identity series, which is scheduled and planned to, just to help remind us about who we are, why we exist, and what God has called us to do. And we look forward to that time. Uh, and then after that three-week period, we'll go back to Matthew's Gospel, and we will finish up Matthew uh, by the time we get to Advent. And it's hard to believe that we're here first Sunday in September and we're talking about Advent. But just remember this, and I was thinking about that. Advent is coming, or the second Advent is coming, or for believers, uh, we're going home, but one of the three is true. And uh, some of you are hoping that you can make it to Advent because you know on the end of Advent, then you're going to celebrate Christmas, and maybe you have some great Christmas gift you're looking for. Uh, I'm not sure. But we are going to pick up in Matthew chapter 22 uh, today. Uh, let's look at uh, let's look at it together. Uh, Matthew has been making the case that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the promised son of David who is establishing uh, a new kingdom, and we have been looking at that kingdom. Uh, it is another world, otherworldly kingdom, not like this kingdom. Uh, its foundation has been laid in heaven. Its ethic is different than the ethic of this world. It has a different economy. It is an eternal kingdom as opposed to the temporal kingdom uh, that we live in. It's an indestructible kingdom. And it's one that cannot be overthrown and it can't be overpowered. It's a kingdom that when complete, it'll have no enemy. Nothing will stand against it. It's a kingdom that will be void of sickness and death strife and suffering and heartache and pain and sadness and want uh, and it'll be void of sin this is the kingdom of heaven that jesus was proclaiming and as he stated it and he said it this way it is at hand and the full summary of his message was this if we took all of his messages and put it together the summary comes down to what he began with he said repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, and it's there that things seem so interesting. It's a kingdom whose citizenry is being made up or taken from this temporal kingdom. If we just looked at the kingdom in and of itself, we would wonder, okay, who's going to inhabit this kingdom? Well, he has come to gather those in this temporal kingdom with all the sin and all the strife and all the heartache and all the pain and all the want and all of those things. And he's gathering those individuals to be a part of this kingdom. 
And as we have seen, uh, even as we began in the genealogy, it was apparent that what was getting ready to take place was incredibly and is incredibly unique. We didn't know it the first time that we read it, but right after we read it, we hear that Jesus, this Messiah King, has come to save His people from their sins. That's the reason He said repent. There was a need for turning away from sin and turning to God and looking to Him. And all along the way, Christ is pointing for us to look to God, to look to Him. And those He saves are the citizens of this new kingdom. You'll recall when we were in Matthew 16 that things began to change some. Jesus began to speak openly with His disciples about what they could expect in regards to what He had to do. We heard it this way. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. Now you'll recall what prompted this revelation. By the Spirit of God, Peter openly confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, and he didn't even understand what all that meant. But the Holy Spirit gave him that understanding to at least say, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Well, we already know we're in chapter 22 that Jesus is in Jerusalem. We looked at that last week. We looked at His entrance. He's in Jerusalem, and we see that the tension is escalating. Uh, no one but Him knows what will unfold before the end of the week. I want you to think about that for just a moment. He goes into Zion City, or what is representative of Zion City, because the temple is there. He, the God of that city, the Lord of that city, and the King of that city, that city representing a kingdom that He is establishing, and He goes in, and no one else knows how the week will end except Him. He knows. Tension is building. There's going to be some kind of a showdown for sure. You don't walk into the temple court during Passover and disrupt what had become a common practice to facilitate Passover. Merchants had come from all over the land bringing their wares and all the things that they thought were necessary to facilitate Passover. And he comes in and disrupts all of that. And if that isn't enough, when we read it, he set up shop. He ran them out and he set up shop. And he healed the blind and the lame and the crippled. He healed them. Can you imagine someone coming into the temple court and running everyone else out that had been being there? Their whole, it would be like us going uh, and disrupting a retail store during the Christmas season and just tearing it all up and saying, no, we're going to take over this store and we are going to do this because that's what he did. And then we saw last week that he, on the next day, returned to the temple, and he set up shop again. And this time, he was teaching. And we closed our time last week with Booney drawing down on the closing portion of the end of chapter 21. And when we heard it, and I know you did, when you heard it, you immediately knew things were incredibly serious. 
Let's listen to that last portion again as we read the first section of Matthew 22. But back up in Matthew 21, verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and will be given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And again, he sent other servants saying, Tell those who were invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves that have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. They went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. When the king came in and looked at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. And when we look at the text, immediately we see that Jesus is teaching them about the kingdom of heaven. So we have our cue. We know what we're looking for. Something in this parable or some things in this parable help us understand more about the kingdom of heaven. And so what do we do? We dive in and we begin to look and see how this parable conveys the things about the kingdom. Now you'll recall back in Matthew 12 when Jesus cast out the demon from the deaf and mute man that he was accused of casting the demon out by the power of Beelzebub. Remember that. Jesus' response was, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do you, your sons, cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, I want you to catch that, because what he was saying is, is that the kingdom of God is upon you. I mention that here because the kingdom of God is upon them and the characteristics of that kingdom are being revealed. 
It's been revealed to them and it's revealed to us. Let's just look at the parable. We read it. A king's son, heir to the throne, the prince, is getting ready to get married. And the father does what the father does. The king does what the king would do. He prepares a great feast as was customary. And I'm talking about a huge feast in that tradition and in that culture. And the invitations were sent out in advance to let everyone know that the king's son is getting married and there is this feast. And you know how we are at weddings. Similar. They're great times of celebration. They're big events. In fact, some take months to plan. Months and months are spent planning the weddings, the receptions, the dinners. Special and favorite foods are all ordered. All the china is meticulously selected. Napkins often carry with them some symbol of remembrance. And all of this is to honor the couple. Well, this king had done this for his son. And here the king sends out the invitations. Now you would think that everyone invited to the king's son's wedding celebration would feel honored and say, hey, sure, I'm going to be there. The the king thinks enough of me to to invite me. Certainly I'm going to go. I can hear the conversation. Man walking down the street. Someone, the king's emissary comes and says, don't forget, the wedding feast is on such and such a day. It's ready. You come. I can hear the man go home and tell his wife, clear the calendar. I want you to get everything ready. Make preparations. The king has invited us to the prince's wedding feast. Get ready. I can hear the response. Okay, but what about all the other things that we have to do? What about taking care of the farm? What about taking care of the kids? What about taking care of the work that's going on? And I can hear the man's response. It doesn't matter. The king's invited us. We've got to go. But that isn't what happened, is it? No, they rejected the invitation. Some even showed their hatred of the king and his son by killing the messengers. And the king's response was, he sent his army, he killed the murderers, and he burned their city. The point is, the king was justified. And in the end, we hear they were not worthy of the invitation. The story goes on. There's a second invitation that goes out. Pay attention. Matthew intends for us to see the distinction and comparison between these two groups of people. One, the first two were invited. They were the ones that were on the original guest list. They have been, that was sent out. They rejected and they didn't come. Now, most of us don't like to be thought of as the second string. Kind of one of those things that everybody else gets an invitation to something and then all of a sudden someone finds out that you haven't been invited and you know that you haven't been invited and that you might be hurt if you're not invited. So they immediately try to get an invitation to you real quick so that you're invited and your feelings aren't hurt. We've all heard those stories and we've seen how those things have played out. In most cases, if that's the case, well, if I wasn't thought about the first time around, I'm not going to go this time kind of thing. We've all been through that. Well, this invitation is going out to a group of people that were not the first stringers. They weren't on the elite list. It goes out to people that had not been originally considered seemingly, okay, 
And there's no particular criteria for receiving this invitation. He sends the people out with the invitation, and he says, and you go and get them, good or bad, it makes no difference. The king didn't give any instructions out. He didn't say, go out and find those who are loyal to me, people that I didn't know. He didn't say, go out and find those who have never been arrested and they have a good, clean record. It's not what he said. The invitation goes out indiscriminately. And clearly they came because we read on, look at the words, that the wedding hall was filled. But that isn't all the story. We're still looking at this story. That isn't all the story. You think, okay, there's the end of the story. No. The king comes into the wedding hall and he sees the guests that are there and he spots a man that doesn't have wedding garments on. And the king asked him, he said, why aren't you dressed properly? He says, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. And then the king said, bind him hand and foot. Now, I'm, look at the severity of all this. You bind him. He doesn't seem to, propose, to pose any kind of threat here. He says, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. How does all that fit the kingdom? What is that saying about the kingdom of heaven? Verse 14 tells us, For many are called, but few are chosen. A lot of times we have tension with hearing about few being chosen. It just cuts across our grain here. But notice this invitation goes out. So what was Jesus' communication about the kingdom of God? The kingdom that he was establishing. Well, first, it is a kingdom that is to be celebrated and is unlike any kingdom ever known. Okay? There should have been great excitement about being invited to this celebration. That's the point. That this is, this is unlike any other party that they would have ever been invited to. This is the king's son. The rich man down the road may give a party, but no one is going to give a feast like the king. That's the point. That this kingdom is unlike any other one and that it should be celebrated and it should be longed for. It's a king, it's a kingdom that no one deserves. Notice we hear that the invitation went out. Those rejected it, they weren't worthy. Well, they weren't worthy of it anyway, but they proved their unworthiness by rejecting the invitation. But it's clear that the second group wasn't worthy either. Because there's no criteria that's established there. The good, the bad, the, the, the pretty, the ugly, whoever it is, just go out on the streets and gather the people and bring them in. The third thing is, is a kingdom that is entered by invitation only, and this invitation is graciously given. Notice even the man that was there without the wedding garments on didn't get in without an invitation. It wasn't like he slipped in the back door. It wasn't like he came in uh, uh, through the butler's entrance. No, that's not how he came in. He was invited and he came in. 
But he only came in because he was invited to come in. No one comes in that is not invited. But I want you to look at how broad that invitation is. I want you to see how expansive that invitation is. And how he sent out his servants to invite people to come in. I was thinking about this text. There's such a word here for our place of evangelism in this world. You know, we talk about we want to reach our community. We want to reach our community. Do we really want to reach our community? Are we inviting people to come in to the wedding feast? Are we going out indiscriminately and saying, God is inviting you to come and to be a part of His family? Are we indiscriminately sharing the gospel with people? The fourth thing we see is that the kingdom here cannot be disrespected. I want you to notice what happens with this man. And the young, the old, we sometimes get hung up in this parable. But when we get to the one place where he comes in and he sees a man that's not dressed in wedding garments and wonder, well, what in the world's wrong? Somebody not giving a wedding garment? Uh, is he not wearing the right shoes? He doesn't have the right clothes? He didn't dress up? He didn't put a tie on? What's going on? No, the point is, is that he came in without respecting where he was. He came in without giving consideration to just how special this place is. He disrespected the whole event. He disrespected the celebration. He has no answer. He doesn't say, well, the, the, man, the man passed me by. And it hasn't, all it is is just a statement of saying, this man gave no attention and care to where he was. He disrespected and really disregarded just how incredibly special this event was. And it is a kingdom that if it's rejected or disrespected will result in a just and severe punishment. Now I want you to think about this. The intensity is growing. Last week, we concluded in 21, and we read it just a moment ago, where Jesus is pointing to the cornerstone, and He said, it will break you to pieces or it will crush you. If you reject it, it will break you to pieces and it will crush you. And He says here in this place, again, that the kingdom of heaven, if it is disrespected, if the kingdom of God is disrespected or rejected, judgment will come. We ought to hear that. This is the kind of kingdom it is. This is how it will be dealt with. Now again, I want you to notice that the tension's mounting. The clarity of Jesus' teaching and the understanding that everything about Him served to be a threat because notice what happens. Let's look in verse 15. Then the Pharisees, went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. Okay? Here's their, they're, they're on the attack. Remember, verse 43 of chapter 21, and goes on in verse, and then in verse 46, we hear the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables. They perceived that he was speaking about them. They threatened. They're threatened. And they've got to get him. The Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. 
and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard this, they marveled, and they left him, and they went away. It's interesting that the Pharisees, in some way, while they're being represented, are kind of hiding behind their disciples. In other words, they send their trainees out. Maybe they're testing them to see if, uh, just, how, just how well they can defend their position. Or they may be just sending them out in hopes that Jesus will just let his guard down. That maybe somehow or another that he, he, he speaks at a whole different level when he knows that he's in uh, the presence of the Pharisees. I, I don't know. But I have seen with our work in Ghana uh, that there are times that we've gone into areas where uh, the Muslim influence is great and we're right in the midst of a Muslim community. And we'll go out and we'll sit down and begin teaching. And then we can see the imam's disciples start to trickle out. The imam hasn't come out yet. But the imam's disciples begin to trickle out. And then they start sitting and they begin to question. And we're teaching the gospel and we're dealing with that. And I always know that the imam's not too far off. He's sometime even in earshot distance just to see how his disciples are doing. And then after a while, things will go on. And if he sees that they're not making headway, and I can tell you that they don't make headway, and I don't say that pridefully, but we just continue to teach the gospel, he'll show up. And a lot of times he'll show up with his Quran tucked up under his arm, and he'll walk out and sit down, and he'll begin uh, to interject. Why is all this happening? Well, uh, there is a hope in the course of all of this that they can trap us, those of us who are there teaching the gospel, that they can trap us and in some way discredit what's being taught. This is a similar situation. And in addition to this, not only have the Pharisees sent their disciples, they've sent their disciples along with some of their own enemies, the Herodians which is a political group. That's the political party that supported Herod. Remember, Herod is the Rome-appointed king of the region. So there's no love loss between the Jews and Herod. Uh, Herod is there representing Rome. He is thick as thieves with Rome. He gets his income from Rome. He is able to tax because Rome has allowed him to be able to get that tax. The point is, is they're not friends of the Pharisees. But they are there together with the intent of tripping Jesus up. What does a question have to do with them trying to catch him? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Well, it's, here's the plan. If he said yes, he would be seen as one who supported Rome. And thus he loses credibility and influence with the Jews. If he says no, 
then he is seen as a rebel against Rome. And the Herodians will run back to Herod, and Herod will run back to Caesar. The whole point is, is they have the trap laid. There, he, there is no right answer in their mind for him. Either way, they have him. But notice what Jesus does. He just simply asks for the coin and points out that Caesar's inscription is on the coin. And then he makes this profound statement. And, and don't miss this. Don't, don't get lost here. He says, give Caesar what is Caesar's. Is his coin? Is his inscription? He made it? It's out there? It's his? Give it to him. And then he said this, give God what is God's. In other words, you are stamped with God's image. Give yourself to God. Turn to Him. You don't have to give yourself to Caesar. You give Caesar what's Caesar's, you give God what's God's. What's He telling us about His kingdom? It's a kingdom that can stand and exist anywhere we are. No one can take our heart if we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. They may demand the money which they print. Give it to them. They may demand our service. Give it to them. But they can't demand our heart. And if they do, we don't give it to them. Why? Because our allegiance is to God. He has stamped His image on us. He is saying, don't get caught up in all of this. This life is not about who rules over you here. This life is about God who rules and reigns. And this life is ultimately about the kingdom that I'm establishing. That's what he's saying. He said, you can, you can thrive in any set of circumstances. You can be in prison and, in, and, and be joyous and happy because God has stamped His image on you. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying citizens of the kingdom of God are those who give themselves to God and know that their allegiance is to God. But that's not where they stop. Look in verse 23. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say that there's no resurrection and they ask him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said... If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now they have this story. Just listen to it. It's great. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no offspring left his wife uh, to his brother. So too the second and third down to the seventh. And after them all the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You're wrong. Hear that? You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. 
For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. The Sadducees, who are they? Well, in our terminology today, they would be the theological liberals. They're the ones that have said that, okay, there's a whole lot of myth here in the Bible. That's who they are. A whole lot of myth here in the Bible. There's some truth there. There's some way to navigate through it. It's helpful in some ways, but, uh, but it, it's not true. All of it's not true. To the point that they had denied the resurrection and... They also didn't believe in angels, which both were what Jesus used to communicate the message to remind them that you don't know the Scriptures and you don't know the power of God. So they posed Jesus this scenario of a woman who marries seven brothers. And they're appealing to the Leveret law. That is, it was a law that seems to have existed even before God gave the law. God honored the law, brought it even into His law, because there's really no law, there's nothing that is outside of what God has allowed and brought about in the course of His providence in the world. And He embraced that and brought that for the purpose of building a community. That was the reason why. He was building a nation of people and He was building a community. Whenever He gave land to the 12 tribes of Israel, their progeny held that land. Their sons and daughters held that land. And that land was passed down from generation to generation to generation, from person to person to person, and everybody had a part of it. The situation here is, is that if a woman married a man, and he died before she had children, then she had no offspring to carry on his name so that her part of the family, his part of the family, could receive the inheritance of the land and be claimed in that. And that was central to them being a community. So, the Leveret Law said, if this happens, then if this man has a brother, that his brother is to take her as a wife and have children. And those children would not be his children. Those children would be named for his deceased brother. And so they tell this story, and it's elaborate. I mean, they go at it seven different times. They're going to really catch him on this. What's the point in all this scenario? Well, if the seven brothers and the wife were all resurrected, how could their marriage relationship be reconciled? That was the point. The point was, we're going to catch him here in this whole issue because we're going to get him to admit that he doesn't have an answer for this. Therefore, what we are saying about the resurrection in this story, now when he says, I don't know, that I have no answer for you, that I can't work this out, that I can't reconcile whose wife she'll be, well, it'll prove then that the resurrection really isn't true. But notice Jesus said, you're wrong. You know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. What does He say? Well, let's look at what He says again. He said, for the resurrection, for in the resurrection, 
They neither marry or are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. That is, the relationships now are completely different. They're not husbands and wives. They are brothers and sisters. They are citizens of this community, not relating to each other because the kingdom has already been established. There is no need now for the continuation of building a community because the community has already been formed and fashioned and that is the end of that community. What does it help us understand? Well, it helps us understand the importance of marriage, helps us understand the importance of procreation as God is intended to fill the earth with His people so that He will come and from its citizenry, those that He calls who do not reject Him but place their faith and trust in Him for Him to gather them now as the citizenry of this new kingdom and that has been his plan from eternity past and that's what he's trying to help them understand he said that they don't become angels but he points back to the reality that there are angels and they become like angels in that kind of relationship what is he telling us well what he's saying about the kingdom is it isn't a continuation of life here it's a different kind of kingdom. There are all kinds of pleasures that we enjoy here. All kinds of relationships that will not exist in heaven. It's a different kingdom. It's not just a removal of all the bad things of this life and an and a, and a elevation of all the good things here. No. In heaven, our great Savior will be the center of our lives. We crawl out of bed every morning. Some of us early, some of us late, but we're crawling out of bed to do what? To go work, to do pleasure, to do whatever it is that we want to do. And, and for those of us who are believers, we struggle at times when we get down into the day and realize, you know, I hadn't even given any attention to the glory of God in Christ. We know that's true. We are consumed with all the pleasures and the good things here that Christ becomes so small in our lives. Heaven will not be like that. God has given us some wonderful and great things to enjoy here in this life. And He expects us to. In fact, He desires those things to point us to His glory. Our problem is, is that in our economy and in our priorities, we don't do a very good job of it. And what we do, we set the giver of those pleasures aside and we focus and concentrate on the pleasure, on the work, on the money, on the game, whatever it is that we most enjoy and we don't spend hardly any time in our lives looking to, loving on, longing for, embracing and enjoying the greatest treasure of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. For believers, heaven will save us from that. Because it will not be life like it is here. Now I want you to see, can you see how all of this is building? There is this tension that is building Okay, there's this tension that is building. 
We're dealing with these issues in the parables where Jesus is calling them out. And He's doing it graciously and He's doing it lovingly. He is telling them, you're not going to make the kingdom in this direction. And He's telling them, I am inviting you. I am here now. The kingdom of God is upon you, inviting you. And you are rejecting. And just know that if you reject Me and you turn away from Me and you reject this invitation, you will be crushed and destroyed just like these groups were in these parables. Such a gracious warning. And then He is calling on them, give your hearts to God. In the same way that he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying, give your hearts to God. And then when he gets here, it's the same thing. Look, look to God. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to this king because he is the greatest treasure. And that is what heaven will be like. But then notice what happens. Look in verse 29. 34. Not 29, 34, but verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Now, notice this is still a test. This is still a test. And this is a lawyer giving you a test. And when a lawyer gives you a test, it's pretty serious, isn't it, Justin? Yeah, <laughs> when a lawyer gives you a test, asks you a question, it's pretty serious. And here's the question. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, now let's pause there for just a moment. What was he expecting to hear? What was the lawyer expecting to hear? This is a test now. He's not here inquiring, just looking to Jesus as the one of authority. No, he's here to test him. What did he expect to hear? There's 600 and some laws. There's 600 and some commands and laws that's given in the law. And he says, Jesus, which is the greatest? He was expecting the first part. He wasn't expecting the second part. He was expecting the first part because it came straight from what they memorized when they were in vacation Bible school. What they memorized when they were in Sunday school. What they memorized when they were in catechism. What they had memorized since the time that they could begin to commit things to memory. Came straight from the Shema. And what did Jesus say? This is the great and first commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. But then he gives him what he didn't ask for. And he said this. And the second is like it. Now, if you ask for the greatest commandment, and the first thing that comes out of your mouth is... Whatever it is, this is the greatest commandment. But then Jesus doesn't stop there. He said, and the second is like it. In other words, the second is equal to it, but notice the order. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. How does this help us with the kingdom of God? What is he saying as it applies to the kingdom of God? God's intent from creation has been for humanity to love him above all else and then for people to love each other. That's his intent. We may wonder why that has to do with the kingdom of heaven. The weight of that command is tremendously heavy. Only those who feel that weight and consider its significance, its wonder, its value, and its beauty are citizens of heaven. It doesn't mean that there will not be failures experienced in both. My goodness. And I, I, I fail to love God supremely. I confess that. I ask Him to forgive me and help me with that. I fail to love my neighbor as myself. I fail in that. That's heavy. It's heavy. Fail to love others sacrificially. Times we fail to forgive. But when the weight of that command bears upon us and it serves to encourage us to long for God and care for those around us to the point that we will suffer or even die, that they may come to know God and live and enjoy Him, then we are then considering the kingdom above all else. Look at verse 41. And while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Now they've been asking Him questions. Okay? They've been trying to trap him. He's not trying to trap them. He's asking them a question because he is pointing to them and pointing out to them what they have failed to see. And he said it this way What do you think about the Christ? Okay? What he's saying is, is, is what do you think about the Messiah, the Son of God. Whose son is he? Well, he asked them a question and he knew what they were going to give. They were going to give their Sunday school answer. They were going to give the answer that they knew to give. Who was he? He's the son of David. And then he said this, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? And he draws back on the 110th Psalm. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer. And I want you to know that Christ's intent was not to trap. His intent was to cause them to see and to recognize that the son of David, the Messiah King, had to be 
something other than just a human king to come and establish a kingdom that was temporal, that was able to be destroyed, that was not indestructible. Christ, the Messiah, has to be more than an earthly king. We began looking at the psalm that pointed us to Zion City this morning. Why? Because Jesus came into Zion City, His city. The city there where the temple was. The place where it was understood that the presence of God is here. This is where they came to worship. It is where, and it was real. It was where they were told to come to worship. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was. Everything about their covenant, all those pieces sat in that place That's where the priest went in and poured the blood upon the altar. That's where the sacrifices were made. That's where the priest went in and interceded for the people. It was huge. Christ comes in and knows at the end of that week that all of that is going to change. And He's doing everything that He can to help them see that the Messiah... King, Son of David, God's Son, is more than what you think. He's saying, please see this. Why? Because your life depends on it. They should have been looking to Christ. Now, where does that leave us? It's clear that there was then and remains today a tremendous amount of opposition to Christ and His kingdom. The world that we live in ignores Him, hates Him, uses Him, misunderstands Him, rejects Him, denies Him, and misrepresents Him. There are few who love Him and seek to honor Him. And the question for us today is which one of those are we? Which one of those are you? It's incredibly important for you to answer that. Why? If you will notice through all these parables, there is no middle ground. Jesus gives no middle ground. There are those who receive Him and look to Him and follow Him and long for Him and receive Him in eternity and all else are destroyed. In Christ died for our sin that we may be forgiven he rose that we may have life and enjoy the resurrection and be a citizen of Zion kingdom